0: Hi, I'm Nathalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where we discuss the real eccentric and complex history of math. In each episode, we unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. Today we'll talk about Abraham de Moivre, and this episode will answer the following questions. Should you hire a mathematician to read tarot cards? What's the most effective way to study while traveling? What do either of these have to do with math? Let's find out. Hi, everyone. Today we have another exciting episode. I'd like to welcome back Joanna, and we are going to talk about demoive. We actually had an interesting conversation just a second ago about demoive. In America, I've always heard it as demoive, but you over across the pond, you had done a little bit of looking and and you had heard it as, or the correct way is is de moivre. Am I pronouncing that correct?
1: I think so. I mean, my French is kind of like school French and um, I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert, but the O-I kind of like spelling is one. That's how I've heard it in in my math studies in the past as well. And so on de moivre. So I I hope that, because that's how I'll be telling it to my students as well. Yeah, well,
0: you know what? we'll, We'll go with that. You know, if there's anyone that that knows French, let us know what's correct. So I want to set the stage as we as we sort of start this. So his name is Abraham de Moivre. He was in the time period 1667 to 1754. So we're in the time period of Leibniz and, and Newton. We're in the time period of Chatelet. We're in that sort of world. And as we just talked about, he is in France at this moment when he's born. We kind of know what what we're getting into because we've had the stage sort of set with uh, with Dusharelle. So let's talk a little bit about his
1: his youth. Very happy to be back, just to say that. And yes, so he was uh, French, as he said. His family was uh, very keen on getting their children well educated, so it was kind of like a priority for them. They were Protestants, despite that. His first schooling was at a at a Catholic school. They did maths, but perhaps not as much to capture kind of like his his interest and his imagination. So he did a lot of independent work on his own gradually as he was growing up.
0: A couple of things to point out here, too. His family wasn't Tico Brahe rich. His family was just like normal level rich. But they still, education was important for them.
1: Yeah, exactly. They were kind of like just reasonable. They could afford a home, I suppose, and and some kind of like a mini day uh, today luxuries but nothing extravagant as a private island the problem they had though at the time was uh, they were what is called huguenot which is a group described by their religion being protestant and the king at the time declared that as illegal so anyone who was a protestant a huguenot protestant was declared illegal So essentially, uh, it's
0: like the Red Scare that happened over here in, what was that, the 60s, I think, or maybe even a little earlier than that, where it was, if you were communist, it was illegal.
1: Yeah, we have lots of sad uh, examples in history where different beliefs, different perceptions are declared illegal or prosecuted and so on. Um, And that was particularly difficult for them because there is even suspicion that the was imprisoned at some point because of his religion, like... He hadn't done anything kind of like wrong, didn't yeah. harm anyone, but because he believed something the government did not accept, then he was imprisoned, most likely.
0: As you said, he started out, he's he's Protestant, he started out going to Catholic school, so he had that sort of upbringing type of a thing. So he was only maybe around 15 or so when the king said, oh no, no more rice for you, no soup for you, that's it. He obviously at that point at 15. What are you doing at 15? You're getting into mischief, right? Then that obviously like wasn't cool for them, so they probably
1: wanted to to kind of just dip and go somewhere else. Exactly, and and their solution at the time was the UK. So their religion was not illegal in the UK at the time. However, you, you sacrifice your kind of like you are the foreigner now. You're in right. a foreign land. different language that you have to learn, new people that you need to get associated with, new life you need to build. You save yourself for something, but that doesn't mean that suddenly everything is easy. New difficulties arise.
0: I will say, you know, I grew up in Belize and, and having to sort of leave all my friends, leave all my culture, leave all the things I love and move up to the States now where I used to always be able to go hang out with my aunt, yeah, I couldn't do that anymore. Or like I wanted to hang out with some friends, had to start from scratch all over again. So yeah, I mean, 100%, it's a big deal.
1: Um, I have a similar experience. I mean, I lived uh, yeah. kind of quite old in Cyprus and, and then moved here. So everything changes and you mm-hmm. have to uh, start lots of things from scratch. Definitely. But I think Demar was lucky enough that in his new life, he met Isaac Newton and Edmund Halley. So Isaac Newton, I think because no introduction, yeah. <laughs> Edmund Halley is the uh, mathematician astronomer Halley, a comet was named after. He did come across some really prominent people of the time.
0: So he gets his copy. He totally fangirls over Newton. He gets this copy of the, and and you heard, uh, listeners, if you have listened to the the Newton Leibniz, you heard Ben Orlin and I talking about how to discuss, how to name the book, like how to pronounce it. So again, another pronunciation issue. Is it Principia, Principia, you know, however you, you decide to do it. But he got his own copy of this. By this point, it's just newly published. So he totally fangirled, got his copy, studied it thoroughly, this is just one of my, I say this, there's so many favorite pieces. I say this about every single one of them, but he was working as a private tutor around London. Busy man on the go, also wants to learn the Principia, study it. And so what he did was he would cut out a few pages of this ginormous tome and he would just like take it and study it while he was traveling. No Kindles at this time, obviously. So... (laughs) He would just cut out a few pages. Librarians, please don't be upset. It was his own copy and he was trying to learn. That's what he did as he was like traveling around, busy man about town.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's really interesting to imagine him in his kind of like commute from Uh one end of London to the other and being very studious and uh, looking at those.
0: Now it begs the question. If you were in New York today, let's say you're taking the subway, you can have your headphones in, you can have, you can do your studying. What is the method of transportation in like 1687 London? Are you riding a bike and reading these things? Are you like walking? back a few years ago when Pokemon Go came out and everybody had their phone out and they were walking around, you know, with their phone, not paying attention. Is this what Demov was doing? (laughs) Playing Pokemon Go with his Principia?
1: (laughs) There should be uh, like host coaches at the time. Oh, good. Okay. So uh, that's how I imagined it in the the illustration as well. It's kind of like he's sitting there. Oh, there he is. Yep. That should be about the way, because otherwise it's really difficult. I forgot about that Pokemon craze. The Pokemon—it's <laughs> like I was completely crazy. I, I was just talk- taxes from that, right? I was
0: just talking to some friends. We were playing some games over the weekend, and um, we were talking about the Pokemon Go craze from back when, and how you know you'd have to walk to get eggs and hatch them. And anyway, he managed with all his studious studying on transportation. He managed to impress Newton on how well he had really learned the contents of the books. And he was, you know, openly complimentary of Desmois. And in fact, he had such respect that he would invite him to his house where they would discuss philosophical matters, I guess, sort of a mini salon like they would have in France.
1: Yeah, it sounds like an amazing like afternoon. What better to do than sit in China, over wear tea or something and any recent findings in the physics world and so on. Discussion
0: of ideas, it's always fun. Furthermore, Newton wasn't the only one that was impressed with his work. In addition, you know, you talked about him meeting both Newton and Halley. Halley also looked at at Demov's work and he was super impressed as well. So much so, in fact, that he said, you know, I think you should take this to the Royal Society.
1: One would think that's the most amazing opportunity that opened up for Nemoav. And he was successful in being voted a fellow of the Royal Society. However, he was still not allowed to get a teaching position at the university, despite <laughs> his high level of maths. his uh, even he was producing maths and so on. And he still did not manage to get a teaching position at the university. He remained a math tutor, a very highly esteemed math tutor, of course, around London for the rest of his life.
0: I think to myself, as we were talking about this and as I was reading it, Charles Dodgson was also a math tutor for Christchurch Church College. Did I pronounce that correctly? Was Mm -hmm. it Oxford? I can't remember which one, but, you know, Charles Dodgson, who's another just crazy cat that I would love to talk about. He also was a really esteemed math tutor. And so at that time, like, yes, I'm sure you wanted the university position because it comes with all the gravitas and everything else. But still being a a math tutor is still pretty good at that time. The other thing I wanted to kind of chat about as we were preparing for this, he tutored at, at either houses or at coffee shops. And I wanted to take a second to talk about the coffee shop's in london at that time so i'm a huge fan i'm going to fangirl at this moment tasting history with max miller it's on youtube it's an amazing channel and what he does is he takes a time period and he will make a make a recipe from it he has tasting history and drink history on the same channel and he will talk about a time in history and one of the things he talked about was uh, he had this episode where he actually made coffee with a certain group and he was able to ta- use that episode to talk about the coffee houses in London at this specific time. And so it's, it's a really short episode, this particular one, I think it's like 11 or 18 minutes, something like that. It's not too long. But what he was talking about is exactly what you and I were discussing about this, where the coffee houses at this time were... A place where everyone could gather and everyone could talk about things and learn and exchange ideas, sort of like the salons, you know, in France and sort of uh, maybe Italy and stuff, the Agnesi type things. But also, this was a place of more or less, it could be of learning. You know, we talked about him tutoring there. This was a place where if you couldn't or didn't go to college, you know, the local people could come in and they could learn so much in the coffee houses. And some people, as you pointed out here with Demois, some people spent so much time at coffee houses that they would actually get mail there instead of to their own house because they had that sort of relationship and they spent so much time there. So I thought that was really cool. So again, Tasting History with Max Miller, huge shout out maybe he will shout us out soon
1: <laughs> yeah that would be awesome so i'm quite proud of that part of the story too so it's um it's on saint martin's lane in in london pretty central and i'm imagining that because it was a regular spot for huguenots. so mm-hmm. it was people that were forced out of the country but still got to mm-hmm. talk to each other and support each other and so on but also From what it seems, the the locals were very welcoming and to get people to receive mail at your shop and so on, that's also kind of like really great. There were chess players hanging out there, artists. So I'm imagining the conversations that were going on must have been really intriguing. Of course, it was still mostly men. Women would not have been able to hang out there very much.
0: Unless you were du Châtelet and you were dressed up in men's clothing.
1: (laughs) It's always ways around everything, I suppose, yeah.
0: (laughs) The coffee houses in general are a great story and a great, just a great period of time. And so if you're interested, definitely look into more of that and, you know, Tasting History with Max Miller, that episode on, you know, coffee. Penny Universities is what he called the, um, I'm pretty sure is what he called the coffee houses. Iana, what you just said, where it's a meeting house for chess players, for artists. Each coffee house, like you mentioned, this Slaughter's Coffee House on St. Martin's Lane was for especially for Huguenots. There were certain coffee houses that like if you wanted a certain tradesman, you could go to that coffee house and like post a job or try to find someone or try to find work. And so definitely the coffee houses are are a really cool thing. So let's chat a little bit about his conversations with, uh, well, actually, I'll let you take take the Bernoulli piece of this because I think
1: that's really cool what he did for Bernoulli. He was in regular correspondence with other mathematicians. Obviously, at the time, the that was the way to communicate and, and exchange ideas and so on. And uh, one of his regular correspondents was Johann Bernoulli, and he would let him know about what's going on in London. And Bernoulli would give him his news from his side of the world as well. And um, Bernoulli being actually, Swiss, right? Indeed. Through this interaction that he had with, with Bernoulli and, and the knowledge that he had of his work to get Bernoulli to be voted into the Royal Society as a fellow as well. Of course, the story ended a bit abruptly because, as you said before, with the Newton versus Leibniz dispute, Bernoulli was more supportive of Leibniz. Uh, Des being a close friend to Newton, it was not quite possible. To support Leibniz, I suppose at the time. That's when their correspondence ended. But that happened after Bernoulli was voted as a fellow of the Royal Society.
0: Again, this is such a just a, a sad period of time because at this point the line's drawn in the sand. And it's like, all right, Team Newton on this side. And it's like, but you're my friend. And, and well, no, you're Team Leibniz. All right, you're on that side. No longer can we be friends. It's just such a shame because you think about all the, how how much further we could have gotten given that if we had just continued to put our collective, why do you have to have your name on something? But it's fine. It's fine.
1: (laughs) You're completely right. I mean, uh, Leibniz was completely destroyed after that. Mm -hmm. He died a year later. And then nowadays uh, it's pretty strong evidence suggesting that the two discoveries were kind of independent and, and, they would never be completely independent, would they? They were bouncing ideas off right. each other, and it's kind of like you need interaction with other people to progress your ideas. Most of the time, it's very rare that you can just wake up one morning and something will just occur to you. So, and have two names on, on something, it's okay. There's so many things these days right. that have two or more names on them. Which there's is- a
0: thing that says there's no original idea, and I think at this point in time, today, 2023. I had to look just now. I'm like, are we 2023? Because what is time anymore? (laughs) And I think now it's true, right? We've had so many sort of iterations. It's like, oh yeah, I can see you read enough books. You watch enough TV shows and movies and all that. You can clearly see the inspiration for each subsequent thing. Now, at the time... 1690 whatever 1700 at that time sure there are all these great discoveries and things like that but how plausible or implausible is it knowing that the same information is out there you probably have access to some of the same similar stuff that two people could come up independent of each other with the same idea we talked about this on the on the Newton Leibniz episode but it's you know it's it's such a shame such a shame let's talk about some of the math that that he's
1: done Demo contributed to several areas of maths, and uh, we have theorems carrying his name today. Mm-hmm. One of his earlier books, called Mensura Sortis* from 1711, is where we find one of the very early definitions of probability, terms similar to favourable, what we call favourable or unfavourable outcomes today. Uh, later, uh, in 1718, uh, He wrote something that translates into the doctrine of chances or a method of calculating the probability of events in play. And he was calculating probabilities on games that were very popular at the time. Basically, it became like a popular book for the gamblers of his time. It seems like there might people or there might be some people that were going and asking for his advice on where to uh, place our bets and so on, but we cannot be sure. There's no clear evidence on whether he was paid to give that advice <laughs> or not.
0: So definitely building on some of the work that Cardano did and some of the work that we had with Fermat and Pascal and all that sort of stuff. You know, we're we're at the, again the same time period and with that crew. Before it was like the gods rolling dice for the world. And now we're starting to discover, like if you have loaded dice, you can win. There are, you know, things that you can do to up your chances and what might be the best thing to bet on just setting the stage again for for that time period. So yeah, definitely. And I love that here he is. He's like, you know, it's kind of like what we think about today maybe is like the the astrology or the fortune teller where it's like, I'm going to go pay money for them to tell me what I should do next in my life because maybe I'll have the best chance of success. So he's kind of the early tarot card reader, except totally legit. <laughs>
1: I've never, never thought of that connection, but I like it. Yeah, at least this one is legit. You can like trust those probabilities. I thought it's really interesting that he kind of like started describing independent events for the first time as well. Lots of students definitely confuse mutually exclusive with independent. So mutually exclusive cannot happen at the same time. Independent do not affect one another, but they could happen at the same time.
0: An example would be maybe like, oh, I took an Uber home and then my favorite movie was on TV. Those are independent because they have nothing to do with each other. Mutually exclusive, maybe an example of that might be like, I've bought one book and then I bought another book in two separate transactions. Those cannot occur at the same. I mean, they could if I bought them at the same time. But for purposes of this, I have two transactions. So they wouldn't be able
1: to occur at the same time. Yeah. Or, or things like it's raining and it's not raining. Anything that if something happens and I went and I didn't go or, or, and things like that, anything that everybody knows the saying, like, I want to
0: have my cake and eat it too. But I actually (laughs) did some, some like research on this because I was like, if I have my cake, why wouldn't I want to eat my cake also? That's stupid. Otherwise I wouldn't have a cake. The correct phrasing is actually, I want to eat my cake and have it too. And I was Mm -hmm. like, there it is because no, you cannot have, you cannot eat your cake and also have it. But you certainly could have your cake and eat it too, which is I think we can certainly circle back around this to talk about this exact thing when we talk about Gödel in a future episode. But yeah, so that's a mutually exclusive
1: example that I think is. Yeah. A- no, I love it. I didn't know. I I knew it as Harvey, and as you uh-huh. said, and yeah. I was imagining it on a on a kind of like centerpiece on a table waiting for guests and. If I eat it, I cannot have it there. But the other way around makes a lot more sense. Thank you. Yeah. It
0: drove (laughs) me nuts for I can't tell you how long of my life. And I was like, there has to be. There's no way. Of course, I want to have my cake and eat it too. So, yeah. So we've got independent and mutually exclusive. I'm sorry. I totally interrupted you on that because I got really
1: excited, but go ahead. (laughs) Oh, no. I loved your example. It's great. It makes so much sense. So, yeah, independent events. He came up with the definition and the formula for independent events. So the probability that two events happen at the same time, if it's equal to the product of their individual probabilities, mm-hmm. then they're independent. But the big thing is that also goes backwards. If you know they're independent, then you can use that formula. And of course, we know that in maths, the vice versa thing, that if and only if, if with two Fs, is not trivial. It's a really strong statement to know that if that is true, then we can conclude they're independent. And if we know they're independent, we can go backwards. I think a a simple kind of like example to illustrate the point is that if you know shape is a square, then it's also a rectangle. But if it's a rectangle, it's not necessarily a square. So there are lots of statements that go only one way. So this relationship appeared in his book. Such a result was quite a ahead of his time in a way.
0: I love we talk about these mathematicians and we always say they're ahead of their time. And I wonder, is it like everyone that has these cool discoveries, are they ahead of their time? Or is it just that it was always going to be destined to happen? Because you think about like, and again, I keep going back, I guess for as much as I talk about them, Fermat and Pascal, right? Like certainly ahead of their time. But at the same time, it's like, It was perfect for their time because it was gambling, but they would never have been able to foresee a world today where we're using predictive analytics, chat GPT, all these sorts of things, all born upon them just writing letters to each other about the unfinished game. Like, it's just amazing to me. And I think to myself, is that ahead of their time? Or were they just like, no, we're just going to play around and doodle around and figure this out and how it's used, right?
1: That's, I guess, the important piece. I think you're making a very fair point here because I think it's possibly just a trivial phrase that we use without thinking thinking it through probably exactly on its time it probably came out <laughs> when it was supposed to when the everything was ripe enough to allow for that idea to emerge so I think you're so right I don't know how to get rid of that from my from my speech, though, because it's so ingrained. Don't
0: get rid of it day. from your speech, because here's the thing, right? OK, so another tangent, because apparently that is that is very on brand for me. An example, I was talking to my husband the other day when I was still teaching, I had this student in class. So, so many of my students like sort of change the way I think about things because that's like interacting with each person in the world. That's sort of how you change your perspective on things. And they help you to be a better person and achieve like transcendence, I guess. But when I was teaching, I had this student for whom English was not his first language. And so he would come in and we would talk about whatever topics we were talking about. And he would consistently ask me, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And so pretty early on, I was like, you know what? You look up the definition because this will be helpful for all of us. Let's see what it means in English in a way that like you explain it to me the way you understand it. And then we will relate it to math. And so a really cool example of that, right, is linear regression. So I'm going to look up right now the official definition of the word regression, because that was what he did not know. The definition is a return to a former or less developed state. So that's the definition of regression. So I was like, all right, what does that mean? And he's like, kind of makes it simpler. And so if it's like this complicated thing, it makes it like a lot simpler. And you think through a hundred percent. 100% 100% what that is, is linear regression, right? You take all these complicated points and you try to figure out what is the most like useful path or the simplest path through them is a line. And so once we saw that, and then this was, I can't remember what year this was, but this was when BuzzFeed had printed this, like l- one of their listicles. And it was like, they had kind of plotted out viewership for each season of popular shows. And then they also had drawn a line through it. So you could kind of see the trends. So it was like, all right, all of the messy numbers in between. But look, you could see whether or not viewership is going up, going down. And so we did this throughout the whole semester where he would look up words. He would tell me what they meant. And then as a class, we would discuss it. Language is super cool and super important for that reason alone. So I don't think we should ever think to strike it, but have our cake and eat it too, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes some of these math words, even if it's not your first language, they wouldn't mean anything to you. It's just a very strict mathematical definition and some other times, or a use of a word in a specific context, and some other times it, it describes very well what it does.
0: If you think about in math, the word and the word or mm. mean two very specific things. But if you're in an English class and you're reading and you're skimming, they teach you to skim like maybe in the when you're first learning to read and, you know, you're getting your skills of skimming and that type of stuff. And English will tell you skim over the small words like the and uh, or when those are so important. The coffee mug versus a coffee mug are two completely important and different things in math. Not so much in English, right? How would it affect if it's the or ah, right? So I think it's interesting, the vernacular and the,
1: you know, the rules and stuff, but definitely related. I don't know. The end and or, I think it's it's a whole kind of like, it's a bit of philosophical approach to life almost. If you are an end person, I want that and that. Mm -hmm. It's not very likely that you're going to get everything you want. If you're more flexible, like all that, all that, I think it's a lot easier to get what you want. I agree with you sometimes when you skim read or you just want to get the keywords in and, and stuff like that. But essentially it's, it's a whole different approach To
0: Oh my gosh. I'm still processing what you said about the and and or person. And I was like, What happier people we could be if only we were or people. And I'm like, I'm going to, this is going to be my new thing. I'm going to be an or person. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's create a trend. Let's be or people. Be or people. (laughs) Honestly, I think or people will be much happier.
0: 100%. It's like, it doesn't have to be exactly the way you want it all the time. It could be this or this, you know? That's awesome. I know we were talking, we kind of, again, my fault, and I would apologize, but then I'd be apologizing for my entire life. So, you know, I know we got off track. We were talking sort of about, I think we were just getting to the point where we were bringing in Laplace into this
1: discussion of his math. We were just talking about, yeah, the independent events, Mm -hmm. the kind of like if and only if kind of idea. And of course, there were some things that Demois stumbled across and uh, worked on them, but Later mathematicians worked further on them and expanded when at at greater depth. So Laplace, as you said, was such a mathematician that reworked, took results and, and took them a bit further. And actually, there's some theorems that bear both of their names now, namely the central limit theorem and so on. That takes us further down into the normal curve and the normal distribution.
0: The normal curve, if you're not, you know, a statistician, that's kind of the bell curve. That's kind of what you heard a lot when you hear professors talking about I'm curving a grade and stuff like that. That's kind of all related to this. But essentially, the idea behind it being that most of the items should lie in sort of the middle You've got some outliers. And so, you know, you can go read Malcolm Gladwell to learn more about outliers if you want. But basically, you've got, you know, a few that are like on on each end,
1: lower and higher, and most are going to be in the middle. Exactly. And there are surprisingly many areas in life in the world around us that follow the uh, uh, normal distribution, of course. Mm -hmm. This also kind of shows us that even things that may seem obvious to us now, they take it. Quite a bit yeah. of time until they're kind of like discussed, uh, investigated, and polished to a level where it can be like a theorem or, um, right. or a general principle, and so on.
0: Like your example that that we were we have here is you know you think about with the normal uh, distribution. Think about something like height. Sure, you've got some some super short people, you've got some super tall people, but most of the population in general is going to be within a certain amount of you know height so definitely that would be a good example of of normal distribution
1: yeah absolutely and, and i think even variations from country to country and so on but there's still like very much a yeah. similar pattern right right right.
0: the other thing was that that demov did was he provided an early solution to the night's tour problem which i just love this First off, its name, Knight's Tour. So, if you think about in chess, the way that the knight moves is it moves three spaces forward and then one space left or right, and so kind of an L. The question was, how can a chess knight go over the entire chessboard or how can it touch every space? So, the Knight's Tour solution that he found had a starting and ending position far away from one another, but basically would still touch every place on the board. and much like everything else, mathematicians subsequently have managed to find better and better ways to
1: improve upon the solution. Yeah, yeah, I think it's one of those problems that we may not think of as necessarily mathematical or when people are at school, like they wouldn't possibly come across this problem. But uh, formulating a, a path, I think it's quite an interesting way to uh, navigate it. Um, you know,
0: in thinking about this problem, we'll take us a slight left again. <laughs> I've been watching this show on Dimension 20. It's also on YouTube, but it's called Game Changer. And basically, it's like you never know the rules of the game and you kind of have to figure it out as you go. It's a pretty cool game. But one of the things that they did, uh, the one of the guys that was on one of the episodes, he's a philosopher. They were talking about the prisoner's dilemma because they actually put the prisoner's dilemma in the game. And he said, guys, 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 he's like, the prisoner's dilemma is only hard in theory. It's been proved multiple times that if you put people in the situation, you know, they can solve it and solve it very easily. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened on the game. It got solved very easily. But at the high level, no one could really think about We don't know how to solve this. I think the night's tour is probably something just like that. Like in practice, it'd be like, oh yeah, this is how we can get around here. But if you try to put abstract math to it, then it becomes a little more challenging, I think.
1: Yeah, I suppose it's. uh, we have lots of cases that I'm thinking to to make it more abstract, maybe Seven Bridges of Konigsberg is a classic example, making it into a network and then see if you can navigate it. and, And then you can check any network pretty much and so on. So I think that it's interesting. You're right in that it it becomes much harder when you try to approach it in an abstract way. But once you've done that, then you can solve maybe a lot more similar problems very easily.
0: Which I think we talked about, or I had talked on another episode where it was like, if I were to go in and try to teach probability The way we sort of address it now is here are some formulas and now we shall apply them, right? But wouldn't it be cooler if I would just roll up into class with some weighted dice and be like, figure out how to cheat? Wouldn't that be the better way? Because they're actually practically applying it. And then we're like, all right, now that you kind of see in the practical aspects of it, you've solved the prisoner's dilemma, as it were. <laughs> now we can talk about the math behind it and understanding how it kind
1: of works, you know? My problem with that, because it did cross my mind at some point. And um, how <laughs> to buy weighted dice, though, what what do you put into I'm a, please, I would like some weight dice. Like, why? <laughs> how, how can you justify such a precious I'm a math teacher. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. To
0: say nothing of, let me teach you guys how to gamble. <laughs> 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 100 percent. We come now, and and I know we haven't even talked about like the De theorem, but that's okay. It deals with complex numbers and stuff like that. And we can certainly chat about that if there's
1: stuff you'd like to to add to that. I think the interesting thing is that it combines trigonometry and analysis. We have the imaginary unit appearing in the formula and it bears his name to to this day and calculating the nth root of a complex number. I think that's pretty big and but we did our mentioning and, and giving him the credit for that. Yeah.
0: Definitely, there's a lot more certainly that we can dig into with the math on that, and certainly you know there's lots of you can just Google Demov's theorem and you will find it, and it will be fun, and you will love it because who doesn't love math? Now let's talk about the. I say the best part is death. It's not the best part, but it kind of is. First things first. He was not poor when he died.
1: There's a lot of I uh, came across kind of like writings and, and podcasts and so saying that he died poor, but actually I found. Writings that say that he had £1,600 to his name when the annual salaries were like £60. So that was a serious amount of saved money that he had. So he did not die poor. He even left uh, some money for his grandnieces and so on, which was an amazing thing to do because he didn't have children of his own. For it things.
0: So uh, either so, he was very frugal throughout his life and saved everything so that he could pass it on, or else he was a a, a very prominent tutor and all that. Maybe everybody just loved him and they were like, quick, get on his calendar.
1: And <laughs> a way he did not die poor, uh, right. which is the kind of like a story that goes around. He did have that money. So maybe he did live very conservatively and did not spend very much, or he was more or better paid than the average tutor. So that's the one thing that doesn't seem to be agreeing with, with the common understanding of his situation when he died. And of course, the other one is how did he die?
0: I'm so excited. Can I share how he died? Yes. Very <laughs> <You're not laughs> odd for me with the drama here. Okay, so if you'll remember, uh, listeners, from the Cardano episode, Cardano is remembered for predicting the day of his own death. And just like everything about Cardano is very controversial. Well, Demoiv, much like Cardano, is also remembered for predicting the day of his own death. However, we don't know what methods Cardano used or if he killed himself because of that. But DeMove approached this in a slightly more efficient, perhaps logical way. He noticed that he started sleeping 15 minutes extra each day. If he slept eight hours today, then tomorrow he slept eight hours, 15 minutes and so on and so forth. And again, I would like to highlight that he didn't have like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch or whatever to kind of track his exact sleep. So he's like just doing this, you know, he's tracking his sleep. It increases by 15 minutes each day. So using the arithmetic progression formula, he found the nth term that would equal 24 hours. And so obviously when he sleeps for 24 hours, then he would not be awake. And so that indeed was the day that he never woke
1: again. <laughs> There's a thousand questions we can ask after this. It's like, uh-huh. who knew about that? Who was tracking him? The day before, did he actually sleep twenty three hours forty five minutes? He was up for fifteen, and then he fell back to sleep. You know, and there are lots of things that you can go into, kind of like a bit of questioning that. But I, I think it's a great story, and it shows like a lot of dedication. On yes, I'll calculate my my. You time.
0: know who it was that was helping him to track his sleep? His grand nieces
1: that uh, he was leaving sixteen hundred pounds to. <laughs> I mean, that was a serious cash for the time. So. <laughs> Even if, uh, yeah, if you had any? There's no suspicion.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. There's no false. No, I'm not trying to spread fake news. Everyone, I just or conspiracy theories of any. everyone goes and they start to research his grand nieces now. <laughs> oh um, my gosh, that was uh, Demouave. That was short and sweet, I guess, of his life and his mm-hmm. his math and his death, his very mathematical death. I love
1: that. Yes, yes, a very mathematical death indeed. And uh, yeah, I suppose that's a good overview of the variety of the things he did as well. And in adverse conditions, like a very difficult start to his life and then living away from his home, forced to do that and so on. So I think,
0: yeah, he did pretty well. Well, thank you so much. It's been awesome as always chatting with you about mathematicians.
1: Thank you so much for having me again likewise i uh, very much enjoy chat, so that uh, these mathematicians um, and all the interesting things they've done and uh, yeah thank you it tell was, us
0: again where we can find you
1: i think the best place would be uh, my website so it's eoana and because it's difficult to spell i know that you put a link in there mm-hmm. in the episode so thank you so 100%. much for that and then there's some like events coming up some workshops that i'm planning and links to my books and all of that. So please visit the website.
0: Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Infinitely Irrational. Can't get enough of the math and the fun? Visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for the math and research behind the stories. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email at podcasts at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one.